Welcome to episode 4 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Before we dive into today's topic, I want to clarify a comment I made in the last episode. I realize that it could be misinterpreted and don't want to spread false information. I made a comment about crack cocaine having a longer prison sentence associated with its possession and distribution because it was more dangerous. While the first part is true, there is a long history of racism in this country when it comes to prison time for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Chemically speaking, they're nearly chemically identical, just in different forms. Crack cocaine is cocaine with the hydrochloride salt or baking soda removed. Hydrochloride salt doesn't have any psychoactive effects on its own, but removing it can make the resulting drug a little more concentrated. The ways in which the two substances are administered is also typically different, which can account for why people might think crack is more dangerous. Crack is typically either smoked or injected directly into the bloodstream. While you can also do this with powder cocaine as well, it's not as common. You get essentially the same effects whether you snort powder cocaine or smoke crack, the difference being smoking the drug in either form results in increased perceived intensity of the effects, though they are short-lived. Hopefully that provides more context about the comment I made, which was said by the prosecutor in the courtroom. I would encourage you to look into the history of legislation regarding crack and powder cocaine. There's a long problematic history that I won't get into on this episode, but I may revisit in the future. Today, I'll be talking about aggression, specifically its role in crime. There are many theories of aggression that attempt to explain why people act a certain way, in a way out of the norm, in a way we have trouble understanding. Some of the time, it seems like all of these theories exist to somehow justify these behaviors, as if acknowledging humans' ability to do evil things reminds us that we are all capable of being evil. It's a hard pill to swallow, and so many people have tried to find someone or something to blame, whether it's a genetic abnormality, our upbringing, or medication. There are two ways of describing aggression, both having the goal of inflicting harm on another person. Affective aggression is impulsive in nature, driven by anger. The main goal is to harm the victim, and is typically a response to perceived provocation. Instrumental aggression, on the other hand, is premeditated. The goal goes beyond inflicting harm. It is a means to an end. Technically, Self-defense falls under the instrumental aggression category, since the main goal is to avoid being hurt by having to harm another person. These types of aggression aren't mutually exclusive, though. There can be components of both types of aggression in a violent act. Some believe there is a genetic component to aggression. Researchers in the 1960s believed inmates in institutions for the criminally insane were more likely to have XYY syndrome a genetic condition in which a male has an extra Y chromosome. They coined those with this syndrome supermales and characterized them as more inclined to violence because of the extra Y chromosome. Most empirical research does not support this theory. However, XYY males do have an increased risk of learning disabilities, behavior problems, and difficulty handling stressful situations. There's also research indicating these men exhibiting more frequent antisocial behavior and criminal convictions. 
Some researchers have tried to draw a link between medication use, specifically medication used to treat depression and or ADD, or attention deficit disorder, and aggression. There have been many instances where individuals who murdered another human being or multiple human beings were taking this type of medication when the murders occurred. I want to give you a handful of examples to illustrate the point. One of these examples is that of Sam Manzi, a 15-year-old in 1997, who raped and strangled his 11-year-old neighbor. He was taking the antidepressant Paxil at the time. Kip Kinkle, a 14-year-old in 1998, killed his parents and continued on a shooting spree in his high school in Oregon. He was taking both Ritalin and Prozac. One of the most well-known examples is the Columbine Massacre in 1999 that left 12 students and one teacher dead. Eric Harris, one of the two shooters, was taking the antidepressant Lovux at the time of the shooting. There are many more examples beyond that that I won't get into on this episode because the list is quite long, but the evidence might seem overwhelming to some people at this point. I do want to note that there is no empirical evidence that suggests these types of medications cause aggression or violence or murderous tendencies. This is a pretty classic example of correlation does not equal causation. The medication may be related to the underlying reasons why someone commits a murder, but it is unfair to say the blame lies solely on the medication. Many of these individuals are often depressed, they have little to no social supports, they have personality disorders, among other diagnosable conditions. This adds a lot of confounding variables to the mix. Whatever role these medications had on those individuals' decisions to take someone else's life can't be known for sure. There is a theory that taking these medications can help alleviate depressive symptoms, as intended, which could possibly enable the individual to take action. But again, this isn't clear. There's no empirical evidence to suggest the validity of such a claim. An older, yet popular, theory of aggression comes from the behavioral and social learning field. John Dollard's frustration-aggression theory was developed in 1939. Dollard believed that aggression was a product of frustration, whereby frustration developed where environmental conditions prevented goal achievement. An important thing to note with this theory is that proximity to the goal highly affected the level of frustration and subsequent aggression. So if you were purposefully cut off from your goal when it was within arm's reach, you were much more likely to lash out in an aggressive way than if you were really far from achieving that goal. Think of yourself sitting in line to turn left at a light. There's only one person in front of you, and the light begins to turn yellow. There's enough time for the person in front of you and you to clear the light, but at the last minute, some entitled driver decides to cut you off, preventing you from making that turn. That's going to make you much more infuriating than if you were 10 cars back and would have had to wait for the next cycle anyway. This theory was revised in later years by Berkowitz, who didn't necessarily believe frustration always begets aggression. He believed it created the opportunity for aggression. Whether someone reacted aggressively was dependent on whether environmental cues existed for triggering that aggressive behavior. It would be like thinking of a person as an unstable landmine that could be triggered at any point, but has to be triggered directly 
to go off. Another quite popular theory of aggression stemmed from Bandura's research in the 1960s. This was illuminated through the classic Bobo doll experiment, where Bandura and his colleagues tested the idea of modeling in children. Can social behaviors like aggression be acquired through observation and imitation? The children who observed adults acting out aggressively toward the Bobo doll were much more likely to respond in an aggressive manner toward the Bobo doll themselves. Compared to the children who saw non-aggressive adults and children who did not see an adult model at all. Bandura believed that children were more likely to model aggressive behavior that came specifically from family members. This belief persists today and has expanded to include violent television and video games as sources of modeling for adolescent aggressive behaviors. Other theories of aggression stem from within our personalities. There's a wealth of empirical research that suggests that narcissism predicts aggressive behavior when there is perceived provocation. So what is a narcissist? Narcissists are individuals with unusually high self-esteem and an inflated sense of self-worth. They are prone to anger because their self-esteem is very fragile, making them especially sensitive to insults and criticism. When a narcissist's ego is threatened, they tend to behave more aggressively as a result. So are narcissists more aggressive than non-narcissists? There is a study that looked at this explicitly. The researcher blasted noise at participants to see if those who scored highly on a narcissistic personality inventory would react more aggressively than their non-narcissistic counterparts. The mode of aggression was toward a simulated competitor who relayed negative impressions of the participant based on false information they had about them. As suspected, narcissists responded significantly more aggressively, providing support for the theory that narcissistic personality traits are linked to aggression. Narcissists are more likely to lash out when someone threatens their inflated sense of self, and it doesn't help that they enjoy tearing those people down in the process. So what about personality disorders? Well, there are two disorders defined in the DSM that are associated with outward expressions of aggression. These include antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. They're part of the same cluster of disorders in the DSM. Antisocial personality disorder includes characteristics such as repeated criminal activity, lying, unreliability, irresponsibility, manipulativeness, lack of remorse, and physical aggression. These individuals can be quite charming, but they tend to have a hard time maintaining long-term relationships. They see relationships with others as a means to an end, using them to suit their needs in the moment. They may be more prone to alcohol-related aggression and may meet the criteria for alcohol abuse or dependence. There is some research that links styles and patterns of some serial killings to features of antisocial personality disorder as well. Narcissistic personality disorder includes characteristics such as a sense of entitlement, lack of empathy, overinflation of abilities or accomplishments, envy, manipulation of others, and arrogance. They require a great deal of attention and validation from others. Along with physical aggression, 
they are prone to committing verbal and psychological abuse as a response to being embarrassed or underappreciated. This disorder is the most frequent diagnosis for those serving time for violent crimes. As you can gather from our discussion today, aggression and the motivation behind aggression isn't very cut and dry. Humans are naturally curious, and we have an internal drive to find the answers to all questions. Most first-year psychology majors will tell you that they went into psychology because they want to understand what makes people tick. Including myself. You can spend your whole life trying to figure out the answer to one very specific behavior and still come out more confused than when you started. As with most things human-related, theories aren't a one-size-fits-all kind of deal. Individual differences, which can include race, age, culture, socioeconomic status, life experiences, and upbringing, to name a few, all make every person's motivation a little bit different, which is why it's so hard to predict the behavior of any one person. Just when you think you have a good grasp on the human condition, someone may surprise you. Maybe they're outliers with their own unique set of circumstances. Maybe they're just a symptom of a larger societal problem. Maybe we'll never know. Thank you so much for joining us for episode four. Next week, we'll be talking about murder, specifically the technical definitions of murder, types of murder, and including a few interesting examples of what might be considered manslaughter versus murder, both intentional and unintentional. So join us next week for that discussion. Thank you so much to all the listeners and all of the new listeners. I really appreciate everyone giving this podcast a chance and giving it a listen and downloading. Um, I would really appreciate if you would give it a review and let me know what you think. I'm pretty active on social media, so don't feel afraid to reach out and start a conversation. I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to my friends over at Real Life Ghost Stories for playing my promo on their episode last week. I am so incredibly grateful to you. Um, they are, for those of you who have not listened to Real Life Ghost Stories, Dan and Emma were the inspiration for me starting this podcast. Um, they're two full-time working adults with lives and an adorable cat named Bims. And I just never thought it was possible to be able to do something like this with a full-time job. And they are succeeding in every way. So I'm, I'm giving it a shot. And thank you so much to Dan and Emma for all of your support. And go take a listen to real life ghost stories if you're into spooky things like me. As always, there are detailed notes for this episode, including a written script and accompanying references and suggested readings in the link to the Google Doc that is in the notes for this episode. I also have a website for the podcast at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is also linked in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. 
All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.